Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the New Testament has Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the first um, book, the book we're going to is Romans. And we're going to chapter 13 and verse 8. If you don't know what the chapter markers look like, the big numbers are chapters, small numbers, verse numbers. So we're in chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Let me pray. Father, we ask that this morning as we... As we examine this text, we pray that this text would examine us, that you would show to us clearly our need for Jesus to have fulfilled the law of love for us, Father, that you will show us clearly how we really lack in this area, how we needed Jesus to come and keep the law for us, to love you with all his heart, mind, and soul, and strength, to love his neighbor as himself, so that he would be perfect. And as he paid our penalty for failing to do those things, Father, that would be credited to our account. Pray that we would understand that as we look at your word. But Father, we pray that as we look at it, we also would understand that as those who have been born again, as those who have new lives in Christ, as those who are new creations, that your spirit is within us, working in us so that we can keep the righteous requirement of your law. So, Father, we pray that we, that we would. We pray that we'd be faithful to your word as we look at it. That you would change us, that we would love you more. That we would love our neighbor more. That you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, in the, in the 90s, when I first started thinking about studying Christianity at all, I was already a Christian, but a very immature one, and uh, didn't know anything about the Bible. And I started thinking, you know, I need to start studying Christianity at the time, I first began by looking at things, um, an area of study called apologetics. You guys may have heard of the area of study called apologetics within Christian theology. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. How do you defend the Christian faith in, in various arenas, whether it be with the cults, whether it be with world religions, whether it be regarding agnostics and atheists, even within the church against false doctrine that's coming into the church? What does that look like? And I spent a good portion of my time studying apologetics. And as I studied apologetics, I recognized that largely it was an intellectual endeavor, and that's not bad. It isn't incorrect to study, to have an intellectual endeavor, but what I realized very quickly was the guys I read the most, the guys I listened to the most, the guys I thought about learning from the most, talked about apologetics in all sorts of ways, but the one apologetic that none of us ever seem to talk about, including myself, incidentally, the great apologetic of the church that none of us ever talked about was the great apologetic Jesus gave us, which is that we love one another. Love for our brothers. Love for our enemies. Love for our neighbors. Love for those who are difficult for us. 
Love for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the mentally ill, the homeless, the hungry, the abused, the weak. That is what proclaims to the world that we belong to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For he showed this love to us, the truly poor. He showed this love to us, his enemies. And we're his children if we do the same. But we are generally those, we are generally those who love just like the world does and not like Jesus. We love those who like us, don't we? We love those from whom we have something to gain. We love the rich and the popular. Just look at how people act when a famous person comes around. You don't even know that person. But we love them. Do you get that excited when you see a poor homeless person on the street? We love those who don't get in our way. We love the well-liked in society. We love those who don't bring harm to us. In other words, our love is not self-sacrificing love. Our love is generally self-serving love. Paul um, has talked about what self-sacrificing love looks like in Romans chapters 1 through 11. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul has made very clear to us that this self-sacrificing love is the kind of love that God has for us. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. See, God showed love to his enemies, to those who were inconveniencing him, to those who were bringing harm to his name, to those who hated him. That's who God showed love to, us. God did that in the person and work of Jesus. And when he showed us that love, mercy broke forth and saved us and made us his friends. And then Paul says after 11 chapters of laying out the fact that God has so deeply loved us, a love that we cannot be separated from because it is a love in Christ, that he says after all of that, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, in view of the mercies of God, what? Pour out your whole life to God. Give your whole life to him because he has done all this for you. Now, live for him. Give everything to him. And he goes on to say that we're to have love for others in the church, that we're to stop exalting ourselves in our own minds, but instead we are to become humble. And as we become humble, we recognize our need for others in the body, and we will be having genuine love for them. And he goes on from then, and he says, not only to love the others in the body, you're to love your enemies. You're not allowed to bring vindication or justice upon them. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Leave revenge to God. You love them. Pray for them. Care for them. Do good to them. Then he goes on and says, and by the way, incidentally, God will take care of justice, and to some degree, he will take care of it even now through the state. For the the state does not bear the sword for nothing. The state is God's agent of wrath. That's what he goes on to say. And then he turns and says, however, that's the state's job. So you believers, that isn't your job. That's for the state. You love your neighbors. Love people. That's what you do as an individual Christian. Love your neighbors. And Paul gives us three aspects of love that I want to look at this morning. Three of them. Here we go. First one. 
three aspects of this love that he talks about for our neighbors. First is this. Love is an unpaid debt. Hear that? Love is an unpaid debt. Look at verse 8. And really an unpayable debt by us. Look at verse 8. Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Paul's working off verse 7. In verse 7 he has told us that we have a debt to the state to pay our taxes, hasn't he? A debt to the state to pay our taxes. And what he's saying is that we're to pay all our debts. If you have credit card bills, if you have money you owe to people, you've got taxes you owe to the state, pay those on time, owe no one anything. However, he said, except there is one debt, there is one debt that you will never, that we will never be done paying. He says this, our debt of love. Never be done paying. Why? Because we're commanded to love one another. And we can never reach the point where we say, you know what? I've loved that person enough. I'm done loving them now. We can't, can't reach the point where we say, you know what? That's enough loving them. Men and women, you are commanded to love each other, and you are never, never done paying that bill. Never. Husbands, you can never say, you know what? I'm done with this woman. Done with my wife. I've loved her enough. I've now fallen out of love with her. That's enough. I've reached the end. Love's not an option here. It's a command. It's a duty. Now, I want to make something clear because when you start saying love's a duty, people start going, oh, that doesn't sound very exciting, right? Girls don't get all excited. Like, I don't come to my, you know, door to my wife and knock on the door and have a big bouquet of flowers. And my wife opens the door and says, oh, and I say, here you go, honey. And she goes, oh, thank you. You didn't have to, right? I don't look at her and go, yes, I did. It was my duty, okay? Here you go. She's like, oh, I just love it when he says that to me, right? That's not exactly how it works. I I know you guys think about it. I'm not saying that that's what I mean by duty. That's not what Jesus means by a command. In fact, in Romans 12, 9, if you look up to Romans 12, 9, he actually makes a statement, Paul does, about love. Let love be genuine, i.e., not hypocritical, not insincere, not putting on a front. Let love be genuine. It's got to be sincere. And this is a high calling. Not only are you to continually, continually love. This verb here, where he's talking about this idea that you are to love each other. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. It's a continuing idea of love. And it's supposed to be sincere, not hypocritical, but genuine. It's the kind of love you're supposed to have. That's an impossibly high calling. We are to always, listen to this calling, we are to always, without ceasing, continually, be loving all people, both friend and enemy, with sincerity. Why are we commanded to genuine love for all people continually? Why? Why does God command us to genuine love for all people continually, this really leads to the second point. This question leads to our second point. It's this. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. He commands us to genuinely, sincerely, non-hypocritically love all people all the time because it's a fulfillment of the law. Look at what he says 
in 13.8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Notice the word for. That's our second point, really. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice the word for there. Paul's making a connection. Do you see it? For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We're required to always continually be loving each other genuinely because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. If we love our neighbor, if we love our neighbor genuinely, we fulfilled the law's requirements in one instance, right? But we've not paid off the continuing debt to love others. Look at the interesting contrast. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. There's a continuing debt to love each other, and then he goes on and says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, Paul, either we've paid off the debt or we haven't. What is it? Why do you have this interesting contrast here? Paul's point is that while you fulfill the law in one instance when you love someone, you haven't fulfilled the law in every instance because you continue to have that debt because you have to love all people all the time with sincerity. When people often tell me, you know, I think, um, in fact, we just had this discussion this week with somebody where he's telling me, I think that the law, the Ten Commandments, are opposite of love. So God gives us the Ten Commandments of the law, and then he tells us to love. In the Old Testament, he says, you know what? Here are these very burdensome and cold Ten Commandments you're supposed to obey. That's just too much. So what I want you to do now in the New Testament is I want to give you a new law, and that's just to love each other. Here's the new law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's so much easier to keep, right? But law and love are not incompatible opposites. They are not incompatible opposites. Love is the motivation to keep the law. Do you hear that? Love is the motivation to keep the law. The precepts, the commands of the law, are the direction that your love goes. They direct that motivation you have. They're not opposite each other, which leads to the third point, which is this. Love does no harm, but seeks the good of our neighbors. Love does no harm, but seeks the good of our neighbors. I just told you, love is a continuing debt. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And love does no harm, but seeks the good of our neighbors. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, you fulfilled the law, and he goes on, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. See, love doesn't replace the law, love fulfills the law. Love keeps the law. If I want to do good to my neighbor and not do harm to him, then I must keep the law. And Paul lists several of the commandments here. Actually, all the commandments he lists here are from what's called the second table of the law. The, the law has ten commandments. Really, we usually, when we talk about it, we, talk, we break it into two tables. The first table is the first four commandments. First four commandments. And they all revolve around love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second table deals with the last six commandments. They all deal with love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says that love is not the opposite of law keeping. It's the fulfillment of the law in this way. If I love God, if I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I will not bring competing gods into his presence. My heart will not love other things more than him. 
he will, they will not compete with him. If I really love him, that won't happen. I will not worship him in unacceptable ways to him. Second commandment. I will not use his name in vain. Third commandment. I will not forsake setting aside a day for corporate worship with him. Fourth commandment. If I love my neighbor as myself, if I love others the way God calls me to, I will seek their good and no, not their harm, so I will not dishonor my parents. Fifth commandment. Those are some of my neighbors. I won't dishonor them either by disobeying them, if there are any children in here, nor by dishonoring them in the way Jesus talks about in Matthew 15, when he says that as your parents become elderly, you have the financial obligation to take care of them. I won't dishonor them in that way either. I won't, if I love my neighbor, I won't murder my neighbor. That would certainly be obvious, would it not? I wouldn't hate them. Jesus makes application of that in Matthew chapter 5. I won't cheat on my spouse or commit, or commit adultery in my heart, which Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. I won't steal from others. I won't lie about or bear false witness about others. I won't lie to people. I won't rob our society of contentment by coveting the stuff of others. See, te- Jesus teaches us as well, though. Paul's not the only one. Look at Luke chapter 10 so we can see the way this is carried out. Luke chapter 10. If we love each other, we keep the law so that we don't bring harm to one another. If you're in Romans, there's, you go back just a few books. You go backwards one to Acts and then to John and then to Luke. In Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 25. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the question. Teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, how do I get saved? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do You notice Jesus teaches the lawyer, if you can keep this law perfectly, then you'll be justified before God. You want to stand before God? Then love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and then you'll be declared righteous and be able to inherit eternal life. An impossibly high bar possibly high bar. But the lawyer wants to remain in the self-righteousness. Jesus is trying to kill this lawyer's self-righteousness. His thought that somehow he is okay with God because of his own good works. Jesus is slaying that in him. And the lawyer turns and says, you know what? I've done pretty well. So I'm going to try to justify myself further. I'm not going to fall on my knees and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, when I hear the command is, you want to be justified before God? Then love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll be just before God. When I hear that that's the command, that breaks me. It should break you. It should be an impossibly high command for you to keep. You should see that and realize, I need mercy. I have to have mercy. There's no way I can keep that command. That's why when I hear Christians sum up the gospel, they say, well, Christianity or the gospel, 
it can be summed up as the great commandment. No, it can't. The great commandment is the greatest burden of law anybody could ever slap on you. That isn't the good news. The gospel isn't, I keep the great commandment. I don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments anymore. I just got to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself continuously, all the time, genuinely. That's easy, right? That's not the gospel. That isn't good news. That's very bad news for me. What it tells me is, you are in trouble. You're fried. Right? Literally, the gospel is that Jesus did all that for me. That's the good news. And Jesus tried to teach this to this guy, but he would rather justify himself. And so look at verse 29 of Luke 10. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, well, okay, I've loved some people pretty well, so who's my neighbor? Jesus demonstrates the impossible high calling here in the next verse, and he says this. Jesus replied, verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. This is a Jewish man, incidentally. Fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, now I want you to understand the setting here when Jesus starts to tell this, this story. This is a parable. This isn't a true story. May have been true. I don't know, but, but it's just told for the purpose of making a point. I want you to hear the, the point of it. Jerusalem is at 3,000 feet in elevation above sea level. 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level. It's a 4,000 foot climb from Jericho to Jerusalem or the other way. That 4,000 foot climb happens in the span of 17 miles which means you are talking about an extreme, steep, downhill, dark, dangerous trail. There were plenty of places on this trail for robbers, thieves, villains of various sorts to hide out. This is the proverbial dangerous and unseemly dark alley is what it is. It's like Jesus saying there was a man who was walking in downtown Los Angeles on a dark alley, and he was beaten and robbed and stripped. Scary place, the kind of place you don't want to go at night. So Jesus is setting up the scene. And in this place, a Jewish man was beaten and laid half dead. Just before the men he's going to talk about arrived, this man is freshly bleeding, freshly beaten, freshly robbed. Right here, the scene just occurred. If you walked upon that scene in that setting, you would be afraid, wouldn't you? Because you realize there is danger afoot here. Look at verse 31 and 32. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. A priest, by the way, and a Levite, the next man, are men who were set aside in the Jewish culture for the purpose. One of their purposes was caring for people like this. He was traveling down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You see, these two men have the job of caring for the poor, the broken, and the destitute, and they walk right by this man. They were probably afraid for their lives. Don't be too quick to condemn them. 
Because you likely have done the same. We, as Christians, are all priests. All of us. We have the job of caring for the poor, the destitute, the sick, the broken, the orphan, the widow. How often do we walk right past them? And these men walked past them because they were afraid for their lives. They may not have wanted to be put off schedule. They may have figured there is no reason for that guy to get hurt and for me to get hurt. One of us is enough. I better hurry along. So in Luke 10, 33, Jesus makes a point, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, what's the big deal that a Samaritan has compassion on? Why does Jesus take two religious leaders of Israel who are charged with the duty of caring for this kind of guy and say they walked past, and then in the story Jesus takes a Samaritan man And that's the man who has compassion. Why? Why does Jesus do that? You want to know why? Because the Samaritans were, by the Jews, considered to be half-breeds. The Jews looked down on them. The Jews were very racist toward the Samaritans. And likewise, the Samaritans toward the Jews. These two groups hated each other based on ethnic identity. Secondly, they hated each other because the Samaritans had a competing religion with the God of the Jews. They said they're false in their religion. Their identity is a bunch of half-breeds. They are scum. We are religious zealots, people of God. And what Jesus does, he says, the true people of God in this picture, from an outward perspective, walk right past the man. And this man who's supposedly a heathen, a pagan, a half-breed, he's the one who has compassion. It would be the equivalent to me saying something like this today in our current context. There was an American soldier who was harmed in Iraq on the battlefield, desperately injured. An American military chaplain and an American medic walked by him, and it was in the middle of a war zone, and they were afraid for their lives, So they kept on going and got to safety and left the American soldier there. Meanwhile, in that very dangerous place, a Muslim, a religious zealot Muslim, came out, had compassion on him and helped him and took care of him. It's that kind of smack that Jesus is giving them. And he says, look at how this Samaritan helped. He risked his life. He sacrificed his time and his schedule. He sacrificed his money, his comfort, even his future time as he planned to come back. The Samaritan man provides advocacy and shelter, financial help, emergency medical help, transportation, and food. He does all this without thinking because he's showing love to this man. See, this is what we would want others to do for us, isn't it? And that's what he realizes. He says, I'm going to do this because this is what I want others to do for me. Pastor Tim Keller 
um, who's a pastor in Manhattan, says this of this text. Love requires, love requires that we meet the needs of others. I want you to hear this. Let it sit on you. Love requires that we meet the needs of others with all the speed, the eagerness, the energy, and the joy with which we meet our own. Hear that? Love requires we meet the needs of others with all the speed, the eagerness, the energy, and the joy with which we meet our own. Now look at Luke 10, 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, the Samaritan understood that all men were his neighbors and he was obligated to love them all. He understood that. Jesus tells the Jewish lawyer, now go and do what he did. Do you hear that calling? You were to show this kind of genuine, ongoing believers, this kind of genuine, ongoing, sacrificial love to all people, those in the church, unbelievers, and even your enemies. You are to love your neighbor who's in need, both believers and unbelievers. And there are plenty, plenty of those in need around us. Further, we're to show genuine love for our neighbor and not just play, pay lip service to them. What we're not talking about here is sending a basket at Thanksgiving or Christmas. That's nice. That's helpful. But I, th- I, I fear that it's often done by me and others because it doesn't inconvenience us that much. Look at 1 John 3, 17 and 18. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. If, you don't familiar, if you're not familiar with the Bible, just keep going toward the end. Just before Revelation is Jude and then 3 John, 2 John, and then 1 John coming back toward the beginning of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 We're essentially given this test of faith. This test of, are you really transformed by Christ, believers? Do you love those whom he loves? Do you have mercy on those who are in need? Look at what he says in verse 17 of chapter 3. But if anyone has the world's goods, that's us, incidentally. We have the world's goods. We're not starving. We're not without shelter. We're not without clothing. We have the world's goods. If anyone has the world's goods, And sees his brother, this is talking about other believers here, that are in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is like the guy who's the proverbial guy who goes by the woman who's broken down on the side of the road with her car tire out, and he knows she needs help, and he drives by and goes, Lord, I pray someone is sent to help her. Right? Right? Rolls down his window, I'll pray you get help. Thanks, dude. I appreciate the lip service. How about taking some time out of your schedule and offering me some actual help? Go back to Matthew, first book of the New Testament. This is talking about the way we help other believers in need. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. This goes through all, this is all over the New Testament, the way we're supposed to love people particularly those in need. Matthew 25, verse 31. 
<clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is Jesus speaking, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is the end, and all the angels with Him, when Jesus returns and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations, all the peoples, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is a test of your heart, believers. It's a test of your heart. Jesus isn't saying that doing these things is how you're saved. What he's saying is that those who are saved do these things. That's what he's saying. Robert Murray McShane commenting on this passage, who is a couple hundred years old if he were still alive, but he's not, he's dead. He said this, I fear, that was a joke if you picked that one. All right, just not a funny one. Either I, he said this, commenting on Matthew 25, I fear there are some Christians among you to whom Christ can say no such thing. What's that? Come thou blessed and inherit the kingdom. Your haughty dwelling rises in the midst of thousands who have scarce a fire to warm themselves at and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost and yet you never darken their door. You heave a sigh perhaps at a distance but you do not visit them. Ah, oh, my dear friend, I am concerned for the poor but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in that great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Now, while those two passages apply to our love for fellow Christians in need, Scripture also cares for us to love all those in need, not just our fellow Christians, all those. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. The Old Testament, he's a major prophet. Isaiah chapter 1. If you've gone to Psalms and Proverbs, you've gone too far, you want to come, or going from the New Testament, if you're coming from Genesis, Go past Psalms and Proverbs. Come from the beginning. Go past Psalms and Proverbs. Past Song of Solomon. 
Go to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. Hear, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. See, what Isaiah is saying here, what God is saying really through Isaiah is that God hates all your religious Christian activity if it does not lead to holiness and care for those in need. You hear that? You want to know something? What he's saying is, I can't endure any more of this empty religious duty from a people who are not pursuing holiness and from a people who do not care about the needs of the oppressed. I don't want to hear it from you. I hate your religious activities. You come and raise your hands to worship. You come and bring yourself in prayer. You gather together on the Lord's day to worship, but you do not care about the poor. You do not pursue holiness. I hate your worship. That's what the Lord says. Hate it. I cannot bear it any longer. If you don't repent of your sin and care about the cause of the widow and the orphan, if you do not come before God in righteousness and as an advocate for the poor and the oppressed, if you do not continuously and without failure love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, if you do not do that continuously, you can walk in the doors every Sunday without fail. You can raise your hands and worship God. You can come before him in prayer. You can read your Bible every day. You can tithe all you want, and you are still damned. Hear that? You are still condemned because God expects perfect, undefiled righteousness. That's the expectation. I don't care how good you think you are. You are not good enough. Not good enough. No one is. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks to, for God. Together they have become worthless. But we're given a glimpse of hope. I don't want to leave you there. Because if I leave you there, you'll go home depressed. And that isn't what I'm driving at. We're given a glimpse of hope. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
See, what I want to declare to you is that you can't always keep the law of love that Paul's calling you to. You can't. You can't keep the law of love that God has called us to. You have failed. You are failing. You will fail. You are condemned in and of yourself, but God will forgive you and declare you righteous. God will wash you clean. God will remove your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. How? Because Jesus, hear that? Because of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the debt of love for us. Jesus did. Jesus loved the poor and the broken and the weak and the hurting. Jesus loved God and his neighbor continuously, without fail, perfectly. Jesus paid our penalty for the failure to do so on the cross so that if we believe in him, our sins are forgiven and his love for his neighbor is credited to our account. Pastor Tim Keller, again, commenting on this passage, says in the great commandment, in the great commandment, Jesus seeks to humble us. Hear that? Seeks to humble us with the love God requires. So we will be willing to receive the love God offers. Hear that? He seeks to humble us in the great commandment with the love God requires so that we will receive the love God offers in Jesus. It is because of Jesus fulfilling this law that Paul can call us to pursue fulfilling it. You hear that? Jesus did all this for us so that we would be forgiven of our sins, so that we would be declared righteous, so that we would have a new life, and so that we would walk in the power of the Spirit. Jesus did all of it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But it's because he paid it. I don't want you to miss this. It's because he paid it. It's because he declared you righteous. It's because when you looked to Christ in faith, you were born again. You had a new life. It's because of that, because of the forgiveness of sins, because of the declaration of your righteousness, because of what God has done in saving you through Jesus, because of that, because of that, you can get up and go toward trying to fulfill this commandment. You can move toward obedience because Jesus was obedient. Jesus loved us. And loving it, Jesus loved is the rational response to the mercy God has shown us. It's the reasonable response. The gospel's given us the power to get up from our failure and try again. It's given us the, the power to do that. Knowing we're already counted as having accomplished it. How much easier is it to start a race when you're told the Christian life is a race? It's a race. It's a marathon. It isn't a sprint. It's a continuous ongoing, looking to Christ, trusting in God, loving your neighbor as yourself. How much easier it is to begin that race when you recognize that Jesus already ran it for you. And that's counted to you. That's credited to you. And now you get up and run, knowing if I trip and fall, I'm still righteous for God. I don't have to go gain his approval. Jesus gained all God's approval for me. God isn't going to love me any more or any less. 
God is going to love me because he loved me in Christ perfectly, continuously, forever, because of Jesus. Paul talks about this actually in Romans 8. We turn back there to our text. How the gospel now empowers us to live, I'll finish with this. We don't love the poor and the weak and the oppressed the way we should. And frankly, as a church, Jason and I have been working through some repentance on what our church, what it looks like for our church to do that better because Jesus did it so well. We're working on that now and we'll be unveiling that over the next few months. But it's shaking us up personally because we recognize that while we haven't done it well, Jesus did and because Jesus did, now we can. And we read this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You've been set free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God required us through the law to love him and love our neighbor perfectly, continuously. We couldn't do it because we're sinful. So God has done it. How'd he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a human. And for sin, he paid for it. He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, it was condemned in Christ on the cross. He bore the wrath of God due to us. He bore it all. God did this, what the law could not do. So that, look at the next verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus loved his neighbors with a completely tangible, self-sacrificing love. Now we, as believers, are to go and do likewise. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and its truth. We are thankful, Father, that Jesus lived the perfect life that we failed to. We are thankful that he, he loved you with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loved his neighbor as himself. That he loved his neighbor perfectly, continuously, always, without fail. Fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, both in its precept and its command and fulfilling it in its penalty, as he took the penalty for our failure, our failure to fulfill it, on himself, on the cross. We're thankful that he did that. We're thankful that Jesus is our hope, that Jesus is our righteousness, that Jesus is our approval before you. And that because of Jesus, if we are looking to him, we have a new life, we are filled with your spirit, and we are able to now work toward fulfilling the law. We pray that we would. We pray that we would be repentant as a people for not caring for the cause of the poor and the oppressed the way we should. The way Jesus did. We pray that you would change that in us. We're thankful that we can look to you for your forgiveness knowing that you did it. That we are counted righteous in spite of our sin. Because Jesus paid it all. And now, Father, all to him we owe. We pray that we would give our lives for him. Pray that we'd radically abandon ourselves in self-sacrificing love for you and for others, particularly 
for the poor and the oppressed. Father, we pray that you would do this work in us. Father, we pray for those who do not know you, who are content with their self-righteousness, who have not repented of their sin. We pray that they would turn from their sin and self-righteousness. They would look to Jesus as their hope. They would know that Jesus has fulfilled everything for them. They would know that they cannot and that they would rejoice in him, that they would trust in him, that you would open their eyes so that they would see the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ. They would be saved. That you would rejoice over them, that we would rejoice with you over them. That your name would be exalted. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.